for the individual people who have chronic illnesses who would be interested in going to medical school, I say, one, please reconsider. <laughs> um, I remember when I withdrew from medical school, my doctors were like, yeah, I don't like medicine. Um, you probably made the right decision. I'm like, oh, my God. Why didn't you tell this to me when I, before I racked up like $100,000 in loans? Um, so I, I throw that in there. Reconsider. There's probably other ways you can be helpful. But if you're dead set on killing yourself, um, be prepared. Get prepared before you go to med school. Get prepared in undergrad. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Each person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. We talk about this over and over again. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. On today's episode, we'll be continuing the conversation about our complicated relationships with medication and redirecting our plans when life and our bodies get in the way. I talked to Serena about her experience pursuing an MD-PhD while also weathering the ups and downs of both bipolar disorder and lupus. Something that has come up again and again on this show is how great it would be to have more doctors who understand from firsthand experience what it's like to live with chronic illness. I personally would love to see that happen. If I didn't hate school so much and had the stamina, I'd even pursue it myself, but it is not a path that makes any sense for me. Sayrita found it wasn't for her either, and was able to trade her MD-PhD track for just getting a PhD, which is still super impressive. She had a rough go of it, but is now nearing the end of her program and shares some wisdom with us based on her own experience. We certainly do not want to discourage anyone from pursuing medical education if that is your dream, but Serena gets very honest about some of the things that you might face. It won't be easy, but that doesn't mean that you have to give up your dream altogether. If I have any listeners that are currently med students, residents, doing a fellowship, or even in as like a grown-up doctor, uh, please email me at insicknesspod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, hear what your experience has been. Even if you want to be on the show, I'd love to talk to you. Um, I think it would be great for people to hear your stories. I want to preemptively apologize to my listeners in Philadelphia. I know I have a lot of you. We talk a little shit on Philly in this episode, so I'm sorry. It's a city that both Serena and I lived in at a time when we both felt isolated confused about what directions our lives were headed, and first started getting really sick. Living in any city probably sucks under those circumstances. You are a lovely city with delicious food, my favorite medical museum, and a vibrant disability community. You're great, really. I've since enjoyed it much more as a tourist, but we both had a hell of a time while living there. 
Sirena will be on another upcoming episode in the new year that contains the second part of our conversation about how our bodies respond to stress and her research in that area. She's studying inflammatory markers in adults who experience early life stress, and we'll be talking about how that can contribute to or exacerbate, but not cause, the development of chronic health conditions later in life. If you stay tuned to the In Sickness and In Health blog this week, I'll be publishing a year-end list of some of my favorite podcast episodes from this year that relate to some of what we've talked about on the show so far. You can find us on insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. As always, I've included links in the show notes for further reading about some of the things we talk about in this episode. If you could take the time to rate and review us on iTunes, it would really help a lot. I hope your 2015 didn't suck too much, but if it did, I hope that 2016 will be a little nicer to all of us. My wish is that in the coming year, we'll all do a better job of preserving basic human dignity in all things, but especially healthcare for everyone involved. So have a happy new year and enjoy the show. So I started college at 17 at Brown in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. I came here actually as part of their eight-year bachelor's MD program. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Program in Liberal Medical Education. And the whole, the whole goal is to create more um, broadly educated and humanistic doctors, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, the other reason I came here is because we didn't really, we didn't have any course requirements outside of what we call our concentration. Everyone else calls their major. Right. We didn't have any distribution requirements outside that which I thought was fabulous. <laughs> As you may know, in high school, you have to take some of everything. Yeah. Well, I went to art school just so that I would never have to take math again. <laughs> I did have to take one more math class. Ah. But um, I came with the intention of being a neuroscience major, which is what I ended up doing. Yeah. I sort of had this thing where like, I took the intro neuroscience class and I said if I get an A in this class I'll be a neuro major and I did so that's kind of that was how that decision was finalized it's a weird way of doing it but that's what I did and I started officially doing real lab research the summer after my freshman year in a biochemistry lab in the summer uh, working on stroke more specifically is trying to like identify where stroke damage happens in the brain blah, 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 stuff happened. Uh, (laughs) I did that research for two summers, and then I reached my junior year, and that's kind of where things sort of crank up a lot. You have to start making decisions about, you know, do you want to do, you know, an honors thesis? And if you want to do that, you know, you have about two years of research to do for that. Um, And I... You know, I I got really sort of hyper about the whole thing. I was like, I'm going to take everything in the world. And uh, kind of at this point, I had also decided to pick up a Hispanic studies concentration. And we don't have majors at, I mean, minors at Brown. There's Mm -hmm. no minors. So if you want to study something else, you have to do a full concentration. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it's basically like getting two separate degrees, except you really only get one. So, you know, that piled on more classes. And so the second semester of my junior year, it was the first time I got really severely depressed. Like, it was terrible. And um, I was supposed to go study abroad in Mexico that semester. So Mm. 
I kind of decided at the, you know, last minute not to do so. And I think it probably kind of worked out for the best. Yeah. Because it would have been really unfortunate to be severely depressed in another language. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was kind of where I think I would say my patient story started. And... You know, I was in a position where I knew what was going on, but it was a sort of, uh, I'm sure some people can identify with this. It's sort of like this sort of almost denial mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, if I had a friend who was going through the same thing, I would say, oh, you absolutely have to go and get treatment. This is what you have to do, blah, blah, blah. But it was me. And I just sort of struggled with it for a long time until I saw that I was really, you know, I couldn't handle it anymore. I was failing three out of my five classes. So I went to psych services here and I went to one, you know, I went to one of my deans and, you know, I kind of got things together, but I, I wasn't, I didn't really recover. I just muddled through. Um, and at this point in time too, I was doing my thesis research and I was doing my work in um, neurolinguistics, which is basically sort of how the brain uh, creates and processes language. Um, And somehow I managed to do that and still be severely depressed. It was really strange. (laughs) I kept going with that. And I remember I saw my I saw my uh, undergrad uh, thesis advisor a few years after that, and I said, you know, I was really depressed that whole time. She was totally surprised because I, like, cranked out everything. Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah, it it was really crazy. So I uh, managed to do that. I actually finished the whole thing. Um, And, you know... I don't know how I ended up graduating with honors, which was, I, I wouldn't say it was a miracle. It was like a beat of a, you know, yeah. sheer endurance, I suppose. Um, well, I mean, you don't have to have uh, any sort of health problem or mental health problem for that to be a feat of endurance at an Ivy League right? school, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I graduated and I decided I didn't, Well, there were two reasons. One, I didn't want to spend eight years in one place. Mm. Um, And two, at this point, I decided I um, would go for an MD-PhD instead of an MD. I've been trained not to say just an MD. (laughs) Um, (laughs) An MD. And so I took two years off and I, you know, kind of, went on down the East Coast to Philadelphia and worked for two years at uh, the University of Pennsylvania in their um, cognitive neuroscience center. Um, And that was where, you know, it really started getting going. You know, I got depressed again, severely depressed. I think it was, you know, a combination of biological stuff Mm -hmm. and it was, the being alone in a new city and Philadelphia in general is just super depressing. I that was where I went to art school and I hated every second of it. it Not is. every I, second, but I say I have a love hate relationship yeah. with it because you know 
uh, the second year I was there, I got a roommate and, you know, I started seeing my partner more seriously, but, um, you know, the first year was torture. Mm -hmm. And then when I got there, the research I thought I was going to be doing was not what I was doing because the, you know, um, I'll say PI, principal investigator, who's the person doing the research. I'm going to say PI after that. Okay. The PI um, decided she wanted to do something else. So I almost felt like I got a bait and switch, right? Mm. So I had the city I was all alone in. It was kind of depressing, especially after being in Providence, which is actually a very nice city. Um, and being, you know, alone and then having this sort of, you know, already underlying trait. And I just like fell through the floor and it was, it was, it was pretty bad. And I, as an employee, I had access to their, um, what do they call it? EAP, Employee Assistance Program. And I called them and I said, you know, I can't do this anymore. And they set me up with a, a psychologist at the, um, in the psychiatry department. And I saw her for about maybe four, like, like December. No, probably more like three months, three, four months, somewhere between that. It's been a long time. Uh, between three, four months. And she said, you know, I don't think you're getting better. I think you should maybe see one of the psychiatrists. And I said, okay. I think that's probably a good decision to make. You know, in undergrad, I was kind of resistant to the idea of taking medication. But at this mm -hmm. point, it was sort of like, I will do anything, please. Yeah. So I went and I saw, because it's a university clinic, you you know, you see a resident and then you see a um, an attending with the resident. So you can kind of get a double team thing, right? And um, so I saw one of the residents, and then, you know, eventually attending, and they say, yep, we do believe, based on your history and your current symptoms, you have major depression, so we're going to put you on Lexapro, and, you know, here's your pills, and are going to come back in a couple weeks. Well, that was really fun, because <laughs> I took the Lexapro, and I just freaked out. <laughs> I completely freaked the fuck out. Like, I was mm -hmm. crying one minute, and I was, like, wanting to punch holes in walls. And I had, like, this hypersexual thing going on. And not I wasn't, like, having sex with lots of people. I was just mm -hmm. thinking about it all the time. Yeah. And I was cleaning my apartment at, like, 3 in the morning. And I paid off, like, my whole credit card, which at the time was, like, $2,500, which wasn't, you know, it's not the most logical way of thinking so i no, but it's usually the opposite that happens when somebody is like having a, a manic episode <laughs> like they usually run up their credit card instead of actually paying I it off so productive like my yeah it was spotless i wasn't in debt <laughs> i wasn't in debt anymore i was kicking ass at work it was all brilliant yeah. and then you know but i was still freaking out at the same time I would like cry at my desk and then I'd be like super social and it was just up and down and up and down and up and down. And, um, I called and I said, I am going crazy. And so she, um, put me on Zeprexa for a little while until I could come into the clinic. And I went in and they said, yeah, um, you know, so 
what else did you have in your history? <laughs> like, why don't you tell us everything? So I went back and I kind of gave them a whole rundown. Um, and they're like, well, you know, we kind of think maybe you had a hypomanic episode that semester before, you know, that semester when you took all those classes and never slept. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to take that Lexapro from you. Why don't you just like give it to us and throw the rest out and, um, we'll start you on lithium because, you know, they said, well, Depakote or lithium. And I knew Depakote was not good for your liver and liver damage is worse than kidney damage. So I made mm -hmm. that trade, right? So we're on the lithium. And um, I won't say it was better, but it wasn't worse. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't flipping out anymore, which was good. But a few weeks into that, I ended up having a toxicity episode. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. And it was really ugly. It was like stuff firing out of both ends you know oh no so i had to come off of that and um so i'm in this place where i'm like off the lithium and they put me on lamictal which is an anticonvulsant that's used to treat bipolar disorder right so uh for people who don't know what an anticonvulsant oh, yeah. is it's a seizure drug it's a seizure drug i'm so sorry yeah it's okay it's a seizure drug and at this time it had just been approved for uh, treatment of bipolar disorder with um, for maintenance um, and it was kind of show that was effective against depression so it was kind of the right drug for me but um, the problem with lamictal is that it can cause this really severe um, potentially fatal skin disorder called yeah. Stevens Johnson syndrome so you Terrifying. can't just start full dose you right. have to kind of climb up to it so I'm in this point where I don't have like lithium coverage and I'm kind of cranking up on the Lexapro so Lamictal sorry thank you Lexapro was gone so <laughs> all these L's so I was kind of in this weird like no treatment hole but it was like there was a period of time where the sky sort of opened up and I was feeling better again. And I wasn't quite manic. I was sort of like, I wasn't hypomanic. I was like hypo hypomanic, if that makes sense. And then I so like just a step below hypomanic, just a step below hypomanic. Uh, I was feeling good. And is that, I mean, is that what normal feels like? Is that what, the, is that what we're supposed to feel like all the time? I don't know if that's what, it's so hard because I don't know what norm, like normal is. Yeah, me neither. Um, so, but I guess that's what some people would call normal. For me, mm -hmm. it was just like, wow, this feels awesome. Because by that point, my normal was depressed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the, at the end of that week, it's like the floor dropped out. And that was the first time, like... I was seriously, seriously close to, uh, I went straight past suicidal ideation. I was like right up on like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. Um, keeping in mind, I live alone. So, you know, I could have easily done it. But I think there was probably something in my brain that said, maybe you don't want to do this yet. And so I called my friend, who is now my partner, actually, um, and I said, I think I'm going to kill myself. And she basically kept me on the phone for about eight hours. Like, oh, wow. And so I'm still here. And she's in the next room somewhere. But um, that was the one time that I was super close to it. Um, 
And, you know, I think I still, you know, I still say to her, like, you saved my life because had I had no one to call, I probably would have done it. Um, but so I, I fumbled through, you know, the, the, the mytho by itself is not the most effective drug for me. Right. I have to qualify that for me. Right. It's important to make yes. people know that like everybody's body is different. We have different exactly. genetic factors that influence how we metabolize medication. We have different, you know, even just uh, levels of adherence, you know, whether you're taking it correctly or not can exactly. drastically affect how it affects you. So yeah, for, for individuals, exactly. you are speaking individually. I'm speaking yeah. individually. Um, but I guess it was enough to keep me from, you know, jumping into the Schuylkill or something. So, <laughs> Which, for people who aren't familiar with Philadelphia... It's a stinky, horrible river that runs through Philadelphia. <laughs> you, know, and you're pre- you know, in good presence of mind, you barely want to walk over it, let alone jump into it. Um, Philadelphia is kind of a stinky place in general. It is, but it's, it's distinctly different, a different kind of stinky than New York is, which is also a very stinky place. Right. But right. This, this summer I was doing a workshop at Columbia, so I was there, I was in the city every day, and then that weekend I had to go to Philly for a wedding, and I was like, wow, the hot garbage smell smells totally different here yes yes hot garbage in the summer <laughs> it's like it bakes the yeah, it's disgusting and all the tr- oh it was horrible and i don't know if you uh, this total tangent but i don't know if you remember those ginkgo trees all over center city oh yeah and they planted the wrong ones they were supposed to plant male trees and they planted the female trees and so there were all these stupid berries in the fall, <laughs> and they smell terrible. Yeah. And I always called them the dingleberries <laughs> because they were so bad, and they would smush in your shoes, and you drag them into the to your house, and now your house smells terrible. Yeah. So of course, all this on top of just kind of being de- dealing with a major depressive episode is, you know, it's brilliant. It's awesome. Exactly where you want to be. Yeah. Uh, so I, I muddled through, I, you know, I, I, I was not as successful as I would have liked to be in Philadelphia in terms of my research career, but I did get into the MD PhD program here at Brown. And so I came back at the end of my two years and I started medical school and I got really depressed again. And so I went to, you know, psychological services again, and I just said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm really depressed, and I can't deal with this. And um, you have, we at the time, it was like five sessions with someone at the clinic. So I had my five sessions, and then they gave me a list of psychiatrists and therapists to call in the community, which, you know, if you're severely depressed and in medical school, you have oh, lots yeah. of time to be screening people. Right. So <laughs> lots of emotional energy to go uh, around. Lots of emotional energy to spare. But um, I called the first, you know, doctor on the list, Um and, you know, she had time for me to come in uh, the next week, which is amazing. 
because as some you know listeners may know, it can be very difficult to get a psychiatrist. Um, you know, in some parts of the country, it can be upwards of six weeks mm-hmm. or more. You know, here in Providence and uh, New England in general, you can throw a dart and hit like 15 of them. So it's a little easier. But, you know, that was a really quick turnaround. So um, I went in and I told her what was going on. And the first thing she did, she said, I'm going to put you back on lithium. And I said, whoa. Last time with that was not so awesome. Yeah. But I went back on it and I was still on it. Um, and I still have the same doctor. So we've been together all, over 10 years now. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> longer than a lot of like relationships. <laughs> right. Um, I, I was, I told her, I was like, I'm going to thank you in my acknowledgements in my thesis. She thought it was funny. And I was like, I'm dead serious. I totally am. I wouldn't yeah. be. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of my ongoing history of depression in medical school. And I cycled a lot. And when I say cycle, you know, some people have like depressions where they're depressed for a couple weeks or a month. Um, my depressions last, you know, four to six months at a time. Mm. So, uh, I'm trying to, you know, get through all of this and, I, at this point, was definitely not doing well academically, so I was going to have to repeat the first semester, which, you know, sets you back a lot in your, it's not quite like undergrad where things are sort of pieced off. Um, Med school is kind of a lockstep curriculum. Yeah, there's not a lot of room for... There's not a lot of room for error, and... Yeah, so I was in treatment for that. And there was already kind of like some hesitation, you know, like maybe you should take some time off. And I said, I can't take time off. I won't come back. I'd rather drag through this than not come back. So, um, uh, you know, they let me stay. And by the end of my first year, they had completely redone the curriculum. So instead of having to redo just a semester, I had to redo the whole first year. (sighs) So, um, you know, I went back and, you know, kind of like going up and down and up and down and up and down, like on this, like, you know, not ever getting back to normal, but constantly like a little bit less depressed, more depressed, less depressed. That's sort of like a sine wave up and down thing. Mm. So I got depressed again and, um... I ended up doing partial hospital program for the first time. And for those people who may not know what partial hospital program is, um, as opposed to inpatient where you're there 24 hours a day, partial hospital is kind of like going to grade school where you go from, you know, 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock and then you go home. And when you're at the program, you're in intensive, you know, therapy and medication management changes all sorts of things so I did that for two weeks and I came out and I thought I was okay um so I went you know I went back to school but at this point you know you you miss a segment you got to redo the whole damn thing Mm -hmm. so I you know so now I'm in a position where geez I have to repeat something else and you know I think they were probably thinking you know at this point you know maybe she shouldn't be here but I guess 
um, you know, they just let me be there on academic warning instead of being dismissed outright. Uh, so, well, yeah, because they that way they can keep taking your money. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> in debt for a lot of money. Oh, I can imagine. Uh. So, you know, I I ended up at uh, at some point doing partial hospital program again, and. It was okay. Um, the problem is, and I'm going to do a caveat again, for me, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is not terribly effective. And this program I went to was highly focused on their psychotherapy being CBT. Mm-hmm. So I think that's ultimately why I didn't get a lot of out of it. Um, and I talked to my psychiatrist a lot about it, and she, you know, I think she, you know, we both agree that that's not what I need. Anyway, so I had done that twice. And so I was repeating my second year. And um, in, you know, starting in the summer of that year, I had been having some weird stuff going on. Like, it's kind of having some joint pain and like, it had like, um, some swelling in my toes. And for the you know, about six months to a year before that, I'd been having these really strange hives um, all over the place. And not like itchy hives, but I guess hives that would be more like um, this condition known as angioedema, where it's like really massive swelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but things started really ramping up. Like I was having, like my joints were freezing and I had this, like, you know, I started seeing this rash and all this stuff. And I said, well, I have an idea what this might be, but I'm going to go to health services. And so I went to the health services and I saw one of the MPs and she said, well, you know, there's a few things this could be, but we're going to do some blood tests. And so she took blood she checked, you know, did physical exam and everything. Um, and uh, like maybe a week after that. You know, I got an email and then I got a phone call, <laughs> you know, that said, call me. <laughs> oh, that's always fun. It's always fun. So I called her back and she said, yes. So your test came back with a positive ANA, which is um, anti-nuclear antibody, which basically means that my immune system was attacking the nucleus in my cells. Mm-hmm. so we're going to send you to a metologist. And I said, I know what this is. Because at this point, I had discovered that I had lost two giant patches of hair. Um, and one might ask what, you know, how you might just discover you lost two patches of hair. Well, <laughs> I have a lot of hair. And, you know, very puffy, very, you know, kind of like I have a, you know, thing kind of going on so it's very easy sometimes to not know you're you you do not have hair places uh-huh. but you know I have like I was textbook you know I'm in med school we had just you know we had just started our what they called supporting structures where they crush dermatology or rheumatology in one section and I knew I was textbook for lupus but I went to the rheumatologist and, you know, they had my records from health services already. Um, the beauty of being in a small, smaller place um, is that it's, a, it's easier to share records. So 
they had my records and um, just got some information, checked me out, and took 19 tubes of blood. That is correct, 19. It should have been around 20, but, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know. And I don't have a lot of veins. So I had, like, this one little vein in my arm that was, like, giving <laughs> up by this point. And I came back two weeks later, and they're like, yeah, um, so you have lupus. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not enough that, you know, I have, like, bipolar disorder. I also have lupus. I'm awesome. Well, so, why stop at one? Why I mean, stop at one? Why don't I just hit, like, you know, everything in one yeah. Um, And, you know, this was kind of like the beginning of the end of med school, like, I, you know, failed a couple things again for obvious reasons. And I, you know, failed my clinical skills exam, which is like learning how to do a physical examination and interviews because I was totally distracted. I couldn't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just said, well, you know, you can repeat this again, but, you know, you might, you'll, you'll be coming up on your time limit and, you know, maybe, you know, this might not be the best thing for you. And I'm like bawling because this is, you know, I had wanted to do this since I was a little kid. And now, you know, they're saying, well, we don't think that this is where you belong. And I was so tired. <laughs> I was just so tired of fighting. I just said, you know what, um, I'm not going to let them kick me out. So I'm going to just withdraw because that looks better than getting kicked out. Mm -hmm. And so I withdrew um, and, you know, at the point that I withdrew, I didn't realize that I wasn't going to be, um, you know, getting any loan money. So we were pretty much broke for months on end. And one of my professors was helping us out, like buying groceries and stuff like that, because otherwise yeah. we had almost nothing. And um, but luckily, um, my partner sort of, you know, went into overdrive and she, you know, said to, you know, she wrote an email to everybody and said, you are terrible people for doing this. <laughs> She, like, sent it to everybody, I swear. It was, like, all the, like, the administrators in the med school and the deans and everybody. <laughs> but she also suggested, you know, like, you were in an MD-PhD program, so there was a PhD spot waiting for you. Maybe we could try that. And I thought, you know, okay, I'll do whatever. And so that worked out. And um, they got me a, you know, worked out a spot in the department I'm in now. Um... And so that's kind of how I ended up here. And in grad school, I went to partial um, two more times. You know, one more at the other place. And then I went to this program that was more like existential therapy, hmm. which is more sort of thinking about who you are and what might, you know, what in your life might be making you, you know, contributing to your depression I don't know it was a very interesting sort of thing it's more like a higher level of thinking I guess yeah that sounds interesting yeah it's it's not terribly common most places are you know cognitive behavioral therapy but this was cool because um you had to think about who you were mm. 
and there was a lot of thinking about who, who what are your um, networks, you know, your support networks, what's important to you in life, how do you identify what to focus on in your life. I liked it. It was a lot of fun. I still have my notes, and I go back to them sometimes. Um, but it was still a struggle. You know, I, I started in a lab where it, it's, you know, it's very physically demanding. Um, you know, it's like 12-hour days, and you're sort of on your feet and in a chair and on your feet and in a chair, running around doing all this stuff. And my body couldn't keep up, you know. Um, and it was really disappointing to me because I, I really enjoyed it. But I couldn't keep up. And I wasn't going to do well if I couldn't be in there all the time. That's just how the, you know, that's just how it's set up. You know, like experiments are what they are. And if you can't do them, you can't do them. Yeah. Um, there's only so many accommodations that can be made. You know, if cells are dying, they're dying. So um, I had to switch to another lab, which is where I am now. And it wasn't, you know, it was more a choice made out of, it was a forced choice. It was a choice kind of made out of desperation, like where can I go that I don't have to, you know, engage in really hard labor. Mm. <laughs> and it's very tough because, you know, I'm like in a physiology pharmacology department. Like, I know people might not know this, but a lot of this work is physically demanding. Yeah, very. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you, you know, between medical school and um, basic research, you don't see a lot of people with chronic illnesses because you, you, you don't have the stamina, mm-hmm. you know, um, and your body just can't keep up, you know, with, you know, all the healthy people. So um, I changed labs and uh, been in the same lab and I've been depressed and I've been not depressed. And, um, you know, I've had, a, you know, lupus flares and, um, you know, even day to day, even when you're not flaring, it's your body is not in the same place as, you know, a healthy person of the same age. Right. And, um, you know, not everybody knows that you have a chronic illness. So, you know, if you don't go to, like, the de- all the department seminars, you might look like a flake. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, something that I think is really important for um, students, especially students with chronic illness, is to find someone who understands you know, yeah you may not necessarily be going through it but at least has some idea that what what it's like to you know what it is to struggle and to be a, your champion because there's going to be a lot of people trying to push you out right and i would not have survived this long if i didn't have one um who's the same professor who's helping us out with our groceries so Aww. it was nice um and i guess that sort of ties into I think what we mentioned at some point about chronic illness in medical school mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so I have a lot of opinions about this yeah um, well in your uh, in your talk from the medics pop-up in New York you said you were told quote chronic illness isn't compatible with a career in medicine and I burst into tears it because isn't. I I really hate to break people's hearts, but by and large, it's not. Yeah. Um, and it's mostly 
there are people who obviously are outright antagonistic and yeah. do not want people where but mostly it's just the system well i mean it's institutionalized ableism it's institutionalized it's like there's no reason why i mean there are there are certain reasons why you know you have to work these super long shifts and stuff like that for mm-hmm. continuity of care and whatnot exactly. but but there's a lot in the in the process along the way that is purposefully built in to weed people out and unfairly targets people who are dealing with disabilities or chronic illness or mental illness. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the the, the issues right up front is accommodation in in the, you know, what you call the preclinical years when you're in the class all the time. Um, This idea that you're seeing more and more about these, like holistic curriculums where everything's tied together and you don't have discrete units is not friendly to someone who has an episodic illness. Mm -hmm. If you miss two weeks, you are fucked. Right. You are not making that up. You are fucked. (laughs) Um, You know. And then uh, when it comes to just like doing rounds and stuff like that, if you're somebody who can't stand up for very long or like has to frequently go to the bathroom or, you know, these like really simple (laughs) things, you are totally fucked. You are. You're fucked. Um, On your surgery rotation, you are fucked. On your OB rotation, you are fucked. Those are specialties where you are really engaged in physical labor for long periods of time and often have preceptors who are not sympathetic to Mm -hmm. illness. (laughs) um you know emergency not emergency medicine internal medicine you know you are working long hours because of continuity of care and sometimes it's just it's hard to accommodate things and when i say hard it's a whole systemic thing it's not like in undergrad where you go and get a slip and give it to your professor and they give you like two extra hours on an exam. Yeah. This is just baked into medical education. It's baked into medical education. Like if a patient is bleeding, they're bleeding, right? Right. (laughs) Like, what are you going to do? Um, and, um, I do believe that there are ways that, you know, at least some adjustments could be made. Uh, I do think that there are probably some, factors of the educational process that are probably I won't say pretty good but they're you know they're they're in some way necessary you know being a physician is a grueling process and you know spending those hours on the you know wards in medical school trains you for that Mm -hmm. I have a a friend who was in med school with me who's now an OBGYN and he's an attending in California, and he still works 30-hour shifts. And so it's not something that ends when you're a resident, you know? Right. Um, well, I mean, that that depends on whether you continue on an oh, yeah, medicine absolutely. or absolutely. you go into private practice or right. something but like even, that. But you know, even, um, you know, it's hard because there's a, a constant weeding process. It's mm-hmm. baked into medicine. Could we find ways to make it more accommodating? Yes. I think there are ways. Can but why would we do that? Do what, why? Oh, well, system. <laughs> no. Um, there's not enough of us on the inside right. agitating for it. We get we get pushed out. Yeah. And even if you, you know, make it, manage to make it through, at some point, most people get pushed out. Right. Um, whether it's because they're partners, when I say partners, they're fellow physicians in a practice 
don't like the fact that they have to go out every while because they're sick. They get pushed out. Um, I know that there was a dean when I was in medical school who had an illness, a chronic illness, who didn't practice medicine anymore because she didn't have stamina for it. Mm -hmm. She was a family physician, so she wasn't in the hospital all the time or anything. But you still, you know, you are even sometimes the psychological strain of seeing all these people with all these stories every 10, 15 minutes gets to be a lot yeah and I mean physician burnout is something that is like a a hugely hot topic right now right and I you know some of the issues that we're seeing with physicians right now burnout um suicide rates uh depression other physical illnesses as well are things that if we you know got we as people you know people with chronic illnesses got on the inside could bring up you know bring to light to say you need to find ways to take care of students. You need to find ways to take care of residents. And here are ways as a patient with a chronic illness, as well as a student, physician, what have you, know that could be useful to healthy people to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. But we can't get in. Right. Um, and it's sort and of- also, I mean, you know, if you are a person with a chronic illness in a medical school, um, you don't exactly have the extra time and energy to advocate and agitate. No. You know, like you're trying, you're to, keep- trying to keep your head above water and, and you don't have... at the same time, not only are you trying to keep your head above water, but you're trying to keep your head down. Right. And what I mean by that is you want as few people as possible to know that you have a chronic illness yeah. because people will be looking at you as a source of failure right you are and what if it's contagious and I don't mean that as like a contagion of like an illness but like what if like I think that people and this is true kind of of how people deal with chronic illness other people with chronic illness in general is that like people are so scared that it's going to happen to them that they don't even want to be around or hear about it because Mm -hmm. like they're like afraid it will somehow be catching yeah, and I think, too, the other issue in medicine, and, um, you know, I have to say a lot of these issues, I honestly don't know how without getting a bunch of people together to yeah. start dealing with these. But another issue is the us versus them dynamic. Yes. So when you get in, you very quickly learn it's an us versus them. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily that it's antagonistic, but it's we're the healers and they need to be healed. Right. They come to us. It's paternalistic. It's a paternalistic model. And I know, you know, they're trying more and more to back away from this paternalistic model, but you still, it's, it's ingrained in the educational process. Um, We are not sick people. They are sick people. Physicians are not allowed to be sick. Mm -hmm. You know, like literally physicians are not allowed to be sick. You do not call in with a cold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is terrible because they are dealing with medically fragile people who like maybe don't have the best immune systems. Exactly. But you know, <laughs> um, and I think that too is what creates this. Um, well, you have a, an ongoing internal struggle if you have an illness and you're in medical school and you know, it's different from people who, I think, 
have what I would maybe call a fixed disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to offend anybody, but this is how I experienced it because I did know people who had disabilities, like physical, fit, what I call fits. You know, um, people who have deafness mm-hmm. and they've been deaf since they were a child. Right. So this isn't something that is changing it's on a regular basis or it's not fluctuating. Right. It's, you know, it's predictable. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get on the wards, and there will still be people hostile to a deaf medical student, oh, sure. but they know that you're deaf. You will still be deaf, and you will always be deaf. They can accommodate. But with someone who has an episodic chronic illness, today you're feeling good. For the next week, you might feel like shit. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with that. You might end up in the hospital. They don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with it. Right. And so, you know, when you're dealing with this whole, like, massive system that's not built to accommodate one person who has these fluctuations in their health and in their, you know, ability, you know, it doesn't work. Right. And so, um, you know, when you see these people and they've gotten through medical school with a disability, it's almost inevitably someone who has a fixed disability, Mm -hmm. hearing loss or, you know, um, you know, they had a car accident and now they're, you know, they have, you know, they're paralyzed from the waist down and things like that. Things that are difficult to, you know, overcome, but are but it's not a constantly moving target it's not a constantly moving target you know what the accommodation is in different situations um so i i really you know combine that with the fact that people who do manage to get through with chronic illness and i think particularly you know the one that people can get through with is mental illness um they keep their mouths shut yeah And sometimes the people, because, like, having a chronic illness or something doesn't automatically, like, make you a a decent person. Some people are just jerks. (laughs) And, you know, there are people who are like, well, I was able to do it, so what's your problem? Oh, my, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, when you look at all of those factors together, we really have to um, have a really massive shift yeah and for the individual people who have chronic illnesses who would be interested in going to medical school i say one please reconsider (laughs) and what i mean that is even when you talk to healthy people they're like medicine sucks i don't want to do it anymore yeah so i have to put that in there because everyone i know like hates they're like i like my job but i hate medicine i would never do it and it's uh, also, I mean, the whole industry is kind of in flux right now and everything's changing and no one yeah. knows what direction it's actually going in. Right. And the only people really benefiting right now are people who work in insurance companies. Right. I mean, or pharmaceutical companies. Right. Doctors are being fucked, too. Yeah. So, to be fair, and, you know, I always try to think both sides, like doctors are getting fucked, too. Like, yeah, they for have sure. these new EHRs they constantly have to learn, and, you know, the new coding systems for diseases, ICD-10 came out. Mm-hmm. They have to learn it all like immediately, and all of this while they're tr- like while their office managers are telling them that they need to see more patients because like reimbursement rates are going down, and so you have less and less time to do more and more. Right. Um, so I have to throw that in there. Um, I remember when I withdrew from medical school, my doctors were like, 
yeah, I don't like medicine. Um, you probably made the right decision. I'm like, oh my God, why didn't you tell this to me when I, before I racked up like $100,000 in loans? Yeah, <laughs> that would have been helpful. Um, so I, I throw that in there, reconsider. There's probably other ways you can be helpful. But if you're dead set on killing yourself, um, be prepared. Get prepared before you go to med school. Get prepared in undergrad. Right. Like, try to search out schools that might be more accommodating Mm -hmm. check in with different schools and find out if they have students who might be willing to talk find out what disability services or whatever the hell they call themselves they changed the name here it's totally Orwellian but is it the Ministry of Disability (laughs) no it's a student and employee accommodation services or something it's like how would I know what that's for disabilities yeah um, so find out what the centers are like, what kind of support they provide for medical students. Do not look just at the support they provide because that is useless to you. Right. And it also, it doesn't, you know, cause I had been considering graduate school, you know, and, um, and everyone was like, oh, just, you know, go talk to their office of disability services. No. They're super accommodating. I'm like, no. well, I mean, they're super accommodating in theory, you know, yeah. like theoretically that's true. But when it comes down to it, when you're actually, you know, when somebody like me who has varying disabilities, you know, things like that, it's not always right. that cut and dry. Yeah. And, you know, I have to give our office here credit. Um, when I was in I didn't actually reach out to them till graduate school um, because I didn't think of myself as having a disability. Many people That's don't. another thing. If you have yeah. a chronic illness, you have a disability, according to Americans with Disabilities right. Act, and probably whatever, you know, if you have a law in your respective country, you have a disability highly likely under that one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't consider myself having a disability, but, you know, I had someone say, well, you should check them out. And they did their best. But the fact of the matter is, medical school and graduate school are so much different. There's only so much they can do. You know, a lot of their accommodations that they work on are in terms of coursework. Right. Uh, Doesn't work with medical school, doesn't work with graduate school. I'm registered with them right now, but there's nothing they can do for me because I don't take classes. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and in medical school, for example, if you're working on the wards, you know, in the hospital, there's only so much, there's nothing they're going to be able to do for you. Yeah. They have no pull, right? So you have to check and see what it is they can offer you as a medical student. It may not be very much. They may be the best, you know, department for, you know, handling disability in the country but they may not be able to do anything for you so you have to check and if you cannot if you frankly have a school that's not willing to connect you with their disability services don't go there yeah Uh, and all of it like to say all of this without even acknowledging that you're then going to have to do a residency and possibly a fellowship absolutely you know and when you move into those spaces, you have even less protection. Right. The, I don't want to use age as the ultimate arbiter, but let's say the younger you are in your career. The younger you are in your career, the more protection you have. 
as a resident, you're highly likely to have very few places that are going to be openly willing to accommodate you. It's a fact. Until we change the system, it's a fact. So if you want to go to medical school in two years, this is the system you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Check, double check, triple check. You may have checked before you went to undergrad. You're going to check a lot more because once you get into medical school, you are going to sign that paperwork for a loan. Very few of you are going to be independently wealthy, so you're going to be taking loans. Once you sign that paperwork, you owe that money. So you want to make sure that you're going to the right place and making the right decision mm-hmm. for you. Right. And there's nothing wrong with starting and not being able to finish. Yeah. But you will pay for that. <laughs> yeah. I have gotten my, you know, official statements because I'm almost done with school on how much I owe. And I'm not going to be a doctor, but I owe doctors amount of months. So, um, well, half, because I only did half of it, uh, which is still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is not cheap at it's all. Not, medical school is not cheap. If you're in another country and it's, like, really dirt cheap, that's awesome. In the United States, it is not unheard of to graduate with two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, yeah, no, and that's and that's, that's just for medical school. That's medical school before yeah. graduate, and the under the average for undergraduate is about thirty thousand dollars. So you're paying a lot for this d- degree. You want to be sure that you will be supported in your endeavors, mm-hmm. and that you'll be able to use it so you can pay off those loans. Exactly, and it's going to be frankly difficult for you to use it. Yeah. Um, I know that people who have gone into medicine with who either developed them during medical school or went into medicine chose specialties in which it would be easier mm-hmm. to have episodic illnesses or to have coverage, you know, coverage being have another doctor pick up your slack while you are slack in the sense that you're not able to see patients, not in a negative way, but it's a fact, Um, to kind of disappear for a while if you have to. They go into specialties that are more accommodating for that. Um, You know, you have to consider that as well. Mm -hmm. So you may want to be a neurosurgeon, but you're not going to be a neurosurgeon. I'm going to tell you that right now. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes that people want to be very encouraging mm-hmm. to the point that they refuse to acknowledge reality. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to be a neurosurgeon. You can't, like, think positively can't your way think. into neurosurgery. Like, you, that's thousands of hours on your feet, staying seven, very still. Seven years yeah. of residency among people who are barely accepting women now so (laughs) yeah I mean well that's like a whole other thing yeah and you have to consider all that yeah I really think it's important I I I wish the system was not so punitive towards people with illnesses because if there was a way to have some sort of even if it was like semi-anonymous support system for people to talk to folks in different specialties that have illnesses yeah. how they do it um because there's a lot of specialties where it's just really hard yeah. you know um you i would advise people to look into specialties where you can work part-time 
without too much, you know, uh, of a disruption. Mm -hmm. um, there are some like that. Um, you could be, you know, radiology, like these days, you don't even have to go to a hospital. They just send you the digital images, you know. Um, psychiatry is one that's easy to do part-time. Um, you could... You know, something like dermatology is not necessarily the most strenuous specialty yeah. in the world. Well, there was like a whole storyline on Grey's Anatomy where they would just like go and hang out in the dermatology lounge. And they yeah. like they had like masseuses and stuff <laughs> up there. <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah. So there are some that aren't too strenuous. I mean, ophthalmology, if you decide not to do surgery, it's not bad, you know. Um... Of course, ophthalmology, you have to do surgery as a resident, but I think it's mostly sitting down. <laughs> um, you know, I can't do, I couldn't do anything surgical because I have a tremor from the lithium, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So you have to really sit down and think about who you are as a person, what your illness is or illness or whatever it is, how they are expressed. You know, you can have depression, but it's not very frequent. Mm -hmm. And you can easily treat it. Some people have very extended, very chronic depressions, like right. I do. And treatment-resistant depression, treatment too. And treatment-resistant. I'm kind of treatment-resistant. So it's harder. You have to really be honest with yourself and not just dream about being a physician because it's like, it's way more physical than people think it is. Yeah. There's way more, um, I can't think of what it would be comparable to. It would be comparable, I mean, you're learning a trade, mm -hmm. right? It's a trade that makes you have to get, like, really good grades. <laughs> well, I think it's it's almost like being an astronaut, you know? You have yeah. to work for years and years and years and years and years and years to get s selected for a very selective you know, program that's very physically grueling, that there are certain physical requirements, um, you know. Right. You can, and it's not to say that you are not smart enough to be a doctor, because I will tell you, you do not have to be smart, as you will know. I think a lot of my listeners are already no. deeply aware of that. You are deeply aware of that. You are deeply aware. But I'm just reinforcing that. Yeah. For those people who, who may still feel that it's a judgment on their intelligence. It's not about being smart. Everybody who applies to medical school is smart. Everybody sitting next to you is smart and, you know, book smart, right? Mm -hmm. They're smart. Um, so it doesn't mean that if you can't get through it that you're not smart. It just means that you don't fit in the system as it stands. Right. And it, if you, you know, do your self-assessment and find that it's not something that works for you, there's stuff you can do out there. Um, I'm trying to figure out what my stuff is right now. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll, you know, have to figure out what your stuff is. But you don't have to be a physician to make change in the system. Right. Because most physicians don't. Most physicians yeah. have no power. You know, um, you, for example, could be making more change in the system by having this podcast than the physician down the street. Right. And I have a lot more freedom in that, like, I can express my opinions and exactly. things like that. Yeah. You're not worried about being 
castigated for right. it or, you know, losing your spot in the practice or getting kicked out of the residency or what or have losing you. my medical license. Or losing your medical license. And I'm going to point this out for you guys who are, have mental illness. It is very tough for you because mental illness in many states is one of the things that can cause you to lose your license. Really? And it can actually keep you from getting a license. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yes, it can. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I did not realize that. Now, that does not mean there aren't physicians with mental illness. What that means is that they're not super vocal about it. Right. Um, Even the ones that are vocal about it make it very clear that they are in constant treatment because you can get into trouble with licensing boards. Um, And if, you know, they do ask, do you have a history of mental illness? If you say yes, they're going to ask you more questions. Mm. So think about that as well. And um, it's not to say that you can't do it. There are people that do it. I guarantee you have physicians that have mental illnesses, even if you don't know. But that just means that you make sacrifices um, if you want to be vocal about the treatment of people with mental illness as a physician and use yourself as an example, you got to think about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I know that um, I went to a talk by a physician who has a history of addiction and addiction is very rampant in physicians because mm-hmm. you've got access, right? Right. You've so got I, access. You've got super high stress levels. You've, you've got, got like high stress levels. You've got perfect access. storm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he developed an addiction and went into treatment and, um, you know, he's not practicing anymore. Yeah. Because it's really hard to get it back. And you can, you will be fighting, you know, with lawsuits forever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that you're up against. Yeah. And you have to decide how much it's worth it to you. Or can you do what you want to do another way? Right. Um, changing the system from the inside is expensive and painful. Yeah. I thought I was going to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive and it's painful. Grad school is very difficult, but there's more flexibility. Yeah. Um, because... You know, once you get out of your coursework, it's really you and your research. If you find research that, or, yeah, I mean, humanities and social sciences, everybody does research. You know, as long as you find research that is flexible and accommodating, you can, and a, you know, an advisor who is the same, you can get through it. Mm-hmm. So if you can, I'm not trying to talk people out of it, but if you can find a way through another graduate education process to make a contribution. Maybe go and get a PhD in clinical psychology if that might be interesting to you. There are things that are more flexible that still are, you know, in the healthcare orbit. Right. That could help you make changes without having to necessarily be in it and having gone through that extended process of, that is veritably suffering for healthy people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, let alone people with uh, all varieties of chronic illness. 
So um, just think really, 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 really hard about why you want to do it. Yeah. And if there's another way, you can. Um, because right now, it's not the best place to be. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, you know, give away the stuff that I learned, um, particularly in terms of how medicine works, you know, how uh, it is to be a physician, what it's like to diagnose things, to do exams, to talk to patients. I learned a lot with mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I don't think you need to pay $200,000 to learn <laughs> that. I, I really believe that there will be new programs to teach people those sorts of things. Um, I know that um, uh, is it Stanford or UCSF, one of them actually has a biomedical graduate, like PhD program, where you do two years with, you do the two uh, preclinical years with the med students, so you take all their classes. And that would include the clinical stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that way you could do it, and you would do it for free. So look into Ooh. that if that might be interesting to you. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, science PhDs are free in case you have any budding scientists who think medicine is the way to do their clinical research. Um, the best way is to get your free PhD and hook up with a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that kind of thing more with people. Okay. Um, but, yeah, think really hard. Think about who you are and what it is you want from the degree, not getting the degree. Not right. being a doctor, but what do you want to do once you become a doctor? Yeah. Because when people really start thinking about that kind of stuff. They change their minds. I know two people, my partner being one of them, who when they really sat down and thought about what they wanted to do as a doctor, decided, oh, that's, oh I'm not going to be able to do that. And both of them got social work degrees. Huh. So, well, she's almost done. <laughs> but... um yeah, I think about what it is you really want to do. So do you want to, you know, work with people who have autoimmune illnesses? Well, what is it that you want to do with them? Right. Because as you may know from your interaction with your physicians, you mostly hand out drugs. Yeah. So what is it you want to do? Can you do that another way? Can you become a psychologist and specialize in people who have autoimmune illnesses? Which would be awesome. We need more of you. Please do that. Oh, yes. Please do that. You know, in retrospect, I would have done that, but um, I'm not going to school more. Yeah. <laughs> All told, like from, from uh, beginning to end, how long will you have been in school? <laughs> you mean like from undergrad or from med school? Uh, either or, or not. I'll I don't from know. Meds, from, from med school. So I started med school in 2005. Oh, God. That's a, that's a long ass time ago. Yes, it is a long <laughs> time ago. And I officially will graduate in the spring. So you can do your math. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really, that's, that's, that's what chronic illness does. Yeah. So you have to be committed to sticking it out. Yeah, it's a long haul. It's a long haul. And, you know, people have told me, like, you know, you're really getting out in about the same amount of time that other people without chronic illnesses get out of grad school. So you shouldn't feel bad. You know, I had this thing like, oh, God, I'm taking forever. But really, I'm getting out in, uh, you know, slightly more than average for my department. Yeah. My department's average is five and a half years. So I'm doing all right. Um, 
And, you know, I think that it's easy to get down on yourself. Oh, definitely. But don't forget that you're walking around with a really, really heavy backpack right. already. Um, and it's so easy to get down on yourself when you're surrounded by all of these super high achieving perfectionist yes, goal oriented exactly, driven people. Exactly. And if you were someone who didn't come into it with a chronic illness and you know didn't have sort of a starting out with a, a that in your head that you had to uh, accommodate for that in your life, it can be very difficult to yeah. um, adjust. And, you know, I say I've been adjusting for more than 10 years, you know, between the, the bipolar and the lupus. Like, I've been adjusting for more than 10 years. I don't think I'll ever adjust. I was just about to say that. Like, I don't think that work is ever over. Um, you know, I've had therapy and, you know, I've been in treatment and I have, you know, great physicians and everything. But, you know, all I can remember is that person who showed up for undergrad and was like, mm -hmm. gonna rule the world. You know what yeah. I mean? And, um, you know, you're, it's hard to change uh, train tracks. Yeah. You know, and, like, right now I have no idea what I'm going to do right now. I have no idea what I want to do. It's a scary place to be, but it's also it's, a really kind of cool place to be. Because, it is both of those at the same yeah. time, except when people ask you, well, what are you going to do? I've gotten really comfortable saying I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I wouldn't trade it. It's a really expensive lesson. <laughs> um, but I do think that in the, in the long run, it's going to help, have helped me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would love people to go in, you know, and, 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 you know, go into the, you know, castle and blow it up, <laughs> but don't, please do you, don't, don't kill yourself doing yeah, it. Don't do don't, it at your own expense. Don't do it at your own expense because, um, there's so much you can do out there. Um, and if you're science minded, again, I will reinforce PhDs are free in the sciences generally. Definitely. People who are interested in biomedical sciences, they will be free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you will get paid. I get a stipend. Nice. That is not small. It's not big, but I do okay. And um, so that's another way you can do it. Um, you know, grad school is hard too. That's another discussion. But mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of cool things you can do. And most of the stuff, like the drugs you take and all that stuff, developed by scientists, not doctors. Excellent point. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. You can find more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.